Hello and welcome to the Wall Street Bulls and Bears Main Street Hopes and Fears podcast. We interview top finance and business professionals who share their unique insights and experiences. We also look at the impact on Main Street and invite them and you to connect the dots. My name is Shanaz Joan Parsan. I'm your host, but we do have other hosts from time to time. Let's get started. Good morning and welcome to the Wall Street Bulls and Beers podcast. We're joined today by Markham Hislop and James Pierce. Markham Hislop is a Canadian energy and climate journalist. He hosts the Energy Talk podcast, conducts video interviews with experts from around the world, writes the Markham and Energy political analysis column and writes about the energy future. He's frequently interviewed on Canadian radio about energy transition issues. Welcome, Markham. Thank you for having me, Shanice. We're also joined by James Pierce, President and CEO. He has worked in the oil and gas construction industry for the past 22 years. He's the CEO and President of Simply Green Distributors. As a company, SGD is committed to accelerating the world's growth in moving to sustainable energy. Working with today's manufacturers and innovators, SGD provides solutions to their clients to help them reach a net zero carbon footprint. Through his in-depth knowledge and experience in the oil and gas construction industry, he has worked hard to provide a platform for inspiring innovation and has a passion for reducing emissions, fuel and power consumption around Canada. He currently resides with his family in Red Deer, Alberta. Welcome, James. Thank you. Hello. Did I miss anything important in the uh, intro? Because I, I know you guys are uh, pretty uh, uh, skilled and there's a whole lot more than what I said. Not uh, at all. You're, you're just, uh, that was fun. Okay, very good. So um, let's start. Um, today's topic is um, the energy transition. Energy transition for our viewers uh, refers to the global energy sector shift from fossil based fuel systems of energy production and consumption, including oil, natural gas, and coal, to renewable energy sources like hydrogen, wind, and solar, as well as lithium ion batteries. Uh, what can you tell us if we're starting off uh, with fossil uh, fuels? And uh, James, you're welcome to um, uh, chime in, but uh, you know, asking uh, Markham, what are some of the biggest challenges facing the industry right now, and what is the outlook near term and long term? Well, I'll talk about the Canadian industry because that's the one I'm most familiar with, and, sure. I, I, and it's got plenty of challenges, as you can imagine. Uh, you know, face staring down the barrel of the the energy transition. But uh, here's three that your listeners may be interested in. The first one is 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 leadership, and I've I've interviewed a number of experts recently on global energy, you know, global oil markets. And the thing that stands out for me is that the oil and gas industry, and particularly its leadership group, thinks of growth in a linear form. Because that's the way, you know, oil production, gas production grows. It doesn't grow exponentially. It grows linear, in a linear fashion. And so that's, the, that's their worldview. But now that we're shifting from energy as a commodity to energy as a technology, now we're talking about wind and solar and, and geothermal and, and all sorts of, you know, of uh, technologies that, that take that, you know, clean electricity and, and turn it into work like electric vehicles and so on and heat pumps. Now we're talking exponential growth. 
So we've got learning curves and costs come down uh, very rapidly. And once technologies reach the inflection point on the, S, the, the adoption S-curve, then it's hockey stick growth. And that's where we've, we've been for a couple of years now. Uh, and we're going to see that, that accelerate. And it's really hard for the oil and gas industry to internalize that. That, that now we're into, you know, first of all, they've never had a, com a, a competition for petroleum for 125 years. Uh, now they do in the form of electricity. Uh, and But electricity, uh, energy as a technology behaves differently. So that, that, that's, a, a, that's a big challenge for them. The second one is the Canadian industry has been just too slow on the energy transition. I, I hear people all the time talk about, well, you know, it's just getting started. Like it started in 2020. I did my graduate work in the mid 80s at the University of Saskatchewan on the transition from horses and steam to, to tractors and combines, power farming, they called it in those days, 1900 to 1930. All, of, all the theory is the same. And I, so I was really lucky when I started doing energy transition reporting 10 years ago, I knew all the I knew the, the theory, at least back at you know, what was available back then. And so I rec quickly recognized that the same forces and principles were at play in this energy transition as what happened at, you know, 100, 100 years or so ago. And the, uh, the, uh, uh, the new to energy technologies, uh, the key ones, are far enough up the S-curve, they passed the inflection point, and now we're hockey stick growth. And that the industry is not adjusting quickly enough to that. They think they have a lot more time than they really do. The third thing is environmental liabilities. This is, this is an issue that pops on and off the radar in Canada, but particularly in Alberta. Um, but the Alberta Energy Regulator thinks conservatively that envir un unfunded environmental liabilities like uh, orphan wells and uh, orf you know pipelines and facilities and the tailings ponds uh, for the oil sands, it's like $260 billion. And then, and then you know, if you round it up to 300 to take into account updated uh, uh, estimates, that is an enormous amount of money. So th there is no discussion in within the industry really about how to get those liabilities paid for and reclaimed. The government is tap dancing around it. And that is a sleeper issue for me that I think is going to come back and bite the industry in the very near future. So those three. Thank you, James. Uh, anything to add? Uh, yeah, I would agree with, with all of that. Um, like, for example, for what I'm seeing, like we're talking electricity also with uh, hydrogen is a massive up and comer here right now. Like uh, they have shifted, though, here. Uh, you know, in in the aspect we're we're putting in hydrogen pipelines, they now can coat and reuse pipe in the ground. They're putting CO two capture back into pipelines rather than into the atmosphere. There is investment, but I would agree that there, you know, what I'm seeing typically just from you know when when I'm selling to my customers around the world in the oil and gas industry, uh, Canada is very slow to adopt. Like you know, for for example, uh, electricity is a transition period. The hydrogen, the bolt on hydrogen units that I have are a transition period, right? Um, you know, which will, you know, arguably be around for 10 to 15 years before we're at that next step. But um, here in North America, it seems, uh, yeah, they're kind of dragging their feet a little bit on it, right? And uh, for example, like our units sell 
all over the world, like 3000 were just sold into Guinea, you know, because they're concerned about air quality and whatever. And they understand that, yeah, we don't have, you know, technology right now to get there, but here's a transition that's going to lower our emissions, right. And get us there eventually. So I, I, I would agree with those statements. Yeah. It's, we need to catch up and, and quickly. Right. So. What's driving some of the fears uh, for that um, uh, lag? Uh, why, why is there, uh, you know, so, why are we so far behind? Well, uh, I, go ahead, sir. Oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead, Mark. <laughs> yeah, go Thanks. ahead. Um, I, I would say that the uh, industry uh, isn't fearful enough. Okay. Uh, so James mentioned, so he's talking to customers all over the world. One of the things I do, and I think it's, it's part of uh, sort of the, my signature as an energy journalist, is I do about four or 500 expert interviews uh, every year, and probably half of them are outside of Canada, and then very deliberately so. And so uh, we punch way above our weight in, in energy journalism. I, talk, I interview people from the International Energy Agency and the Oxford Institute of Energy Studies, and I mean, these are top flight kind of folks. Wood McKenzie... You know, all these guys, folks who work with oil and gas and work also in, in the energy transition. And when you talk to people in the United States and Europe and Asia, you get a very, very different sense of how the global energy transition is progressing. If you only look, if you only talk, you know, read the Canadian media or listen to the Canadian industry, you think, oh, we have lots of time. You know, things are just kind of moseying along. They're just starting to get uh, to speed up. Get outside of Canada. And it's it's a it's a it's a global energy arms race, and China, uh, the world has you know Europe and, and the United States have woken up to the fact that China is way ahead of us in in the energy of the future, and that's why you see the you know legislation like the infrastructure uh, sorry the Inflation Reduction Act at three hundred and sixty nine billion dollars. The Americans don't like being number three. And they and and they pledged to be number one in things like EVs by 2030. They're getting it and they're getting on it. And Europe, of course, is well advanced of North America. But we don't have a we just in Canada. We do not have a clue how far uh, China is out in front of us. I mean, you know, for battery metals processing was one little part of the supply chain in this. They control 80 percent of that capacity. They build a way over 50% of global, you know, of uh, so solar panels and wind turbines and on and on and on and on and on. And, and so we've finally woken up and, and we're in a race and Canadians don't get it that we're in a race. We keep thinking we're in some, you know, this is the 1980s. We, oh, we got lots of time. We'll, 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 we'll muddle our way through. That's, that's my biggest fear is that we won't muddle through and we'll be left behind. James? Yeah. No, uh, very agreeable because coming from both sides of that spectrum, right? It's like uh, I find the willingness that there's change, but like your bigger players, a lot of them are like, like I refer to it as dragging their feet on it, right? Because it is important. You know, the rest of the world is ahead of us, right? We're into things now where, I mean, slowly catching up what I see, right? Like with even uh, lithium extraction, right? Uh, a lot of companies now are moving in. To Canada here and and uh, like I'm part of uh, several projects on uh, drilling lithium and extracting the lithium here rather than the strip mining conventional strip mining and so, so um, we are doing little things to catch up but it's like uh, it's time to put the foot on the gas I would say right <laughs> you know agreed agreed 100 yeah. percent yeah if going back uh, to fossil fuels what uh, do you think uh, you know some of the 
common misperceptions about the industry. For example, so there's a disconnect with fossil fuels and renewable uh, energy. And uh, uh, it seems if you talk to people, um, you know, it's uh, um, it's you know, either uh, this or, and it, we're talking about a transition. So it is going to take uh, some time. Um, if you read uh, some of the newspapers uh, or Twitter or that sort of stuff, you'd think uh, that all oil and gas uh, uh, players, and if we want to stick with Canada, that's fine. They're billionaires, uh, uh, fly around in private jets. Any comments on that? Well, I think that I'll, I'll take a crack at this from, from two angles. First of all, the critics. Um, I do a lot of work on the oil sands uh, industry, and one of the things that the critics get wrong is that uh, oil sands is high cost crude. It's not. It used to be. It you know back in the days when when they were building the industry and and they needed you know incredible amounts of capital to build all their plants up in you know north of Fort McMurray. But those days are over, and now the amount of capital it requires to sustain those those operations is very low. And their and the decline rate of their resource is very low, which compares to you know industries like the American shale industry, where you have to pour enormous amounts of capital in all the time because the decline rates are very high. So the 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 producers over the last four or five years have put a lot of emphasis on getting their break-even costs down. So instead of $65, $70, now you're seeing, you know low 30s to mid 40s, West Texas Intermediate. And they're, they're telling investors in their presentations that those prices, those costs are going to go down to mid 20s to low 30s. And that makes them, they're not a marginal barrel. They're, they're going to be a competitive barrel. And not only that, but, you know, the critics always just talk about the global oil market. Well, they, uh, they operate in the 10 million barrel a day, heavy crude oil market. And that's a very different market. And, and they sell into the American heavy crude oil market, which is half of the, the world's uh, demand. And that's a very different market. I mean, they dominate that market. So I think they're competitive in a way that a lot of Canadians, uh, their critics certainly don't, don't understand. So that's, that's one thing. But now let's look at the boosters, you know, the, the sort of the pro-industry folks. And, you know, it's a narrative in the industry, in Alberta in particular, that Canadian oil and gas is ethical, that it's the most environmentally responsible in the world, and it's clean. We just started an investigative report back in February because of the, the big leak uh, and spill up at the Imperial Oil's Curl uh, oil sands project. And it was, I mean, I now have talked to enough experts, probably about 35, some of them former Alberta energy regulator staff, you know, employees, highly placed uh, employees, and I can tell you that Canadian oil and gas is not ethical and it's not environmentally responsible and it's not clean. And, you know, we won't, I won't get into the details, but trust me, I got receipts on this uh, and a lot of them. And I speak, to, I, I say this as somebody who for years has publicly defended the industry, uh, even though I, I, I tend to criticize it a lot, but there's a lot to criticize. And the industry is going to have to clean up its, its, its act if it's going to survive into this low carbon world where the uh, customers are increasingly demanding uh, low emission, low emission intensity crude and uh, crude oil and gas or crude oil and gas that, that's, that is in fact produced responsibly. 
that's going to be a big challenge, in my opinion, going over the next five, 10 years. James, you've worked in the industry in previous years. Yeah, and uh, I do, it, it, this is something that is it, said by a lot of Albertans, like we're number one in the world, we're number one in the world. And, 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 and I've worked the fields uh, for a long time. I've worked Suncor, uh, right uh, right up in Suncor's, Syncrude, right through drilling and servicing wells. I, I've done the work and it is done. I think that I think the most fair statement is that uh, it's done to the best of our capability to be that. And it is better than a lot of places around the world, but they can always do better. Uh, one thing that I, I find with uh, when people start talking transition, especially if you're super pro oil and gas. Now, I am an oil and gas fan, but I'm also about working with them to get them, you know, to the next level. Right. And there's all this standoff between, you know, transitioning from fossil fuels to, say, EV or hydrogen or whatever. And, and it's. I mean, it doesn't happen overnight, but it is happening. There's always going to be a use for fossil fuels. How we use that is going to be vastly different, I think, in the future, right? Like, you know, we needed to produce certain products and even EVs. There's certain uh, components of that that require oil and gas, but it's transitioning from, you know, the major usage of oil and gas around the world into things like hydrogen, EV, right? So it's, I think the oil and gas industry, and it goes right back to what you said in the beginning, Mark, and they got to play a little catch up. It's not that anybody's really abolishing it, but we're going to use it very differently in the future, I find. And that's, and I think that's the point to transitioning, right? It's not that it's ever going to go away. There'll always be a place for, you know, diesel generators and remote areas and things like that. But uh, it's on these issues, it's like, you got the oil and gas, you got people planting their feet here and planting their feet there and nobody's talking in the middle. And that's really what I think needs to change a lot. There's a lot more conversation around it and education, as a matter of fact, right? So I do agree with that, yeah. Thanks, James. Um, tell us about re reclamation and what <laughs> would have been in, say, Alberta without it. Marka. Well, there, there isn't any reclamation. Uh, there's, a, a, I think, like 6% of the total spaces, uh, area that's been disturbed has been has been reclaimed. And the biggest, the biggest problem here is that uh, there is no money being set aside as security the, the, to, to do reclamation down the road. And this is true on both the conventional side and on the oil sand side. So on the oil sand side, well, let me back up. From the very first, uh, you know, 1947, when you had the big gusher in Turner Valley, and that's really the start of the modern uh, Alberta oil field, the uh, the view has always been amongst industry and amongst and government and the regulator uh, of the day that we'll worry about these uh, environmental liabilities down the road. We'll kick them down the road. So a couple things. There is unlike most many uh, uh, oil and gas jurisdictions around the world, there's no requirement to put up security. You don't have to put up a bond. You don't have to, against reclamation. None of that stuff. So really what we're what what they're hoping is that these companies will be solvent enough when the time comes that they'll be able to afford the the to reclaim the the well and increasingly that's a problem that's one of the reasons why there's like 82,000 you know inactive wells in Alberta right now uh and on the on the other side on the oil sands uh there is, oh, and I should point out on the conventional side, there's no timeline. <laughs> Nobody says, they say you have to, you know, it has to be abandoned, it has to be plugged, it has to be reclaimed, all of that. But there's no timeline to do it. So you could do it in 20, you know, the year 
in the 22nd century. I mean, they're just, there's no, there's no legislative requirement that you do it within a particular time. And so where's the incentive for the oil companies to spend the money today? Okay. So that's, but let's talk about the oil sands. Now we've got 37 tailings ponds with about 1.7 trillion liters of, of toxic waste in there. And it's actually probably higher than that uh, because they're, they do some accounting with the inventory that's a, that's a little suspicious. But uh, I interviewed uh, Dr. Andre Sobolewski, who's started working in the oil sands and on tailings ponds you know, 30 years ago. And he said, there's 900 square kilometers of very sensitive ecosystem up there that's been disturbed. And we, there's nowhere in the world, nobody has any experience reclaiming uh, something at that scale. We don't know if we can do it. And we haven't got a technology right now to reclaim tailings ponds. So we're, we have some enormous challenges here around uh, reclaiming those environmental liabilities that we are continuing to kick down the road. And the time when has come, uh, and I think it'll be this decade, if not, you know, it'll be sooner than 2030, that, that the, that's going to come home to roost for, for the industry and for the regulator and, and for the government. It's going to be an ugly reckoning, in, in my opinion. James, thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, like with, well, as to from working in the industry for timeline cut and cap, there is, there is a timeline. They, they can, uh, as you say, they kick it down the road. Uh, we ne like for the ones that I worked on and normally when it stops producing, they have, I think what it is a, a couple of years or something like that to cut and cap it. Right. Um, so we did, I did do personally a lot of work on cut and capping. Um, for the oil sands themselves, uh, when you're talking about reclamation, like they started out, like when you do, when you look back, it's uh, like, I, I, I'm a history buff. I love history, right? So it, uh, uh, I read up a little on here and there. And so, you know, 1717 is when it was first kind of discovered. And and this was, uh, and you can Google this. It's it's, it's kind of interesting. And I, I encourage people to go look at it. it you know, there's, uh, there's paperwork on a timeline of Canadian oil and gas. Uh, and you'll learn a lot of interesting things in there. there so where the oil sands were, how it was discovered is you could see it was on the ground now you wouldn't have buffalo going through it you would have them going around it or you know the the the, the nations would live all around it as a matter of fact they used the uh bitumen that they'd scoop up off the ground and mix it with spruce gum and they would use that to seal their canoes right so 1717 is when the europeans first started it and then the timeline moves uh another great thing that i found was um that uh, the very first, what triggered the oil rush, and this is just a fun fact, was uh, it was actually the very first well, it was 1858, was drilled in Lamport and Ontario. Was the, and that triggered the North American oil rush. A lot of people think it was Alberta, but it was actually Ontario. It eventually came Alberta and we found the basins. So when it comes to cutting capping and the oil sands, yeah, they do it. They can be quicker. Absolutely. Um, as for a lot of misconception is, is a lot of people just figured that, you know, they just started stripping the oil sands and displaced everybody. Not necessarily so. They were around it. They couldn't live in it anyways, right? There's bitumen on the ground. There was you know, not a lot of, you know, uh, herd animals were grazing there and so on and so forth. So, I mean, there is one side of the argument where people would go, well, yeah, kind of, you know, cleaned up the area, which 
it did and it didn't, right? Because now as to what Martin was saying, right? Like, you know, we have tailings ponds and we have things like that where we never had before, right? So it's, um, I I know that Suncor from working with them, whatever, they do spend uh, exorbitant amount of money that at one point they were looking into the acidity of orange peels and trying to duplicate that to clean up tailings ponds. Uh, they had a small project that uh, down in the States that they were running testings on that where they would run tailings, uh, produce water through uh, orange peels and it was cleaning it up now that's a lot of oranges right so you know but they do spend an exorbitant amount of money uh on trying to clean it up and everything like that but to speak to what mark would say i don't is it quick enough that's the big question like we all know that they invest in it and they do that uh my two questions would be uh, is it going to happen quickly and is it an important enough issue on their radar would be a question right so that's what i have to say there so. Thanks, James. So, um, you know, let's kind of stick on that uh, uh, point. I read, uh, don't want to get in trouble, and, um, you know, a, a Canadian newspaper this morning talking about uh, the oil sands and the ca carbon capture and uh, saying, you know, almost it's a fool's errand because uh, the technologies are not there to do it. So, I mean, what, what should be done? What can be done to speed things up? legislatively like you know uh for companies what what uh would you like to see done go ahead james uh like on the legislation part i can't speak to i can speak to it with what's going on right now they're putting the carbon right back into the ground right shipping it down pipelines finding other use for it like that's what they're trying to do that's where a lot of money's being spent uh, right here in the pipeline world anyways for for me rather than letting it go to atmosphere you pull it out of the ground put it back in that's where a lot of money is being spent now as for legislation around that i i don't know if that's going to be a priority for governments or anything to look at that and go i mean because it is very viable takes it out of the atmosphere puts it back into the ground um i'm not a scientist or anything I, I, it it's a good thing it came out it could go back in but uh, again on that that's all i could speak to on, on that point because there is a lot of work being done to capture that carbon out here in Alberta and, uh, you know, put it back in the ground, uh, even using, uh, you know, orphaned wells, like they're re-entering them for lithium extraction now, right? Rather than have them sit there, right? You know, go back in for lithium. So there's, around the legislation I can't speak to, but there are a lot of initiatives that are happening happening right now that most of the world is not aware of, that the companies are just doing, because they they do, it is, they have to do it, right? Like there's no question, right? So I'm like, Markham, what do you think about that? Before we get to Markham, uh, do you think there's a lack of um, private investment in some of the initiatives? Like, um, what do you think might expedite this? Uh, well, investment obviously is always a good thing, right? But where do you put that investment, right? Do you do you, do we put the investment into uh, growing technologies that are going to speed up these processes, right, and get us, you know, catch us up? Or do you invest into what's going on now? Do you invest into that pipeline? Let's say that we're putting the carbon back into the ground and pumping it in. Do you invest into the well? So where would you put it, right? There's a, two schools of thought on that. Um, obviously, we'd like to put it in an area that is going to make everything happen quicker. But what is that area? That's that's the question, right? So, Markham? Well, I actually can address that because I've, I've interviewed a couple of minister, cabinet, yeah. federal cabinet ministers about that. And 
and and very plenty of experts and followed this for a while. So the problem with the uh, the oil sands uh, carbon capture utilization and storage proposal is their group, the Pathways Alliance, which is ninety five percent of all of the oil sands producers. Uh, they are they've estimated the cost of decarbonization by 2050 at 75 billion dollars okay that's that's fine the problem is they've asked government particularly the federal government to pay 50 billion dollars of that i mean that's enough that's a, a bill big enough to choke a horse yeah. right and and when they brought in the investment tax credit for oil sand ccus here earlier in this year they, I think it was 7.1 billion or 7.6 billion. And then the federal government looked over at Alberta, the Alberta government and said, okay, we're done. You know, now you put some in. And then the Alberta government came back and I think it was, you know, two programs that were maybe $550 million over five years. So I don't know how you bridge that gap. Uh, you, they, what they want to do is they have 22 projects up there that they want to, to bolt on uh, capture equipment. Then they're going to build a pipeline from, you know, that will start at the northernmost project and work its way down south. And then the the where they want to bury it is just north of uh, Cold Lake, Alberta, in, over in the over in the east side of the province. The province the problem with that is you're essentially just burying it. You're not doing anything with it. Now, in um, in Calgary, there's a small research center uh, that is working with three or four companies to turn captured CO2 into stuff. So one company embeds it in in, uh, in concrete. Uh, another one makes materials out of it. You know, uh, they make cloth, they make vodka, they make soap. And I've, I've interviewed the uh, Alberta Innovates folks who are overseeing this and funding some of this research. And they say, look, Alberta has right now in, in advanced materials from bitumen and advanced materials from CO2, because those are two very different, two di very different things. We have we lead the world. That's amazing, and a lot of it has come out of this Alberta Innovates, you know, which is a provincial agency and 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 funded by the provincial government, and the provincial government owns a lot of the the intellectual property around it. The problem is, the scientists tell me, is that it's it's so successful now that other countries, you know, like like the U.S. and Saudi Arabia, that you know they've got these big war chests, energy transition war chests. And they're looking over and going, hey, that's really cool. You know, you're doing really good work. I think there's some potential here. And what the scientists are worried about is that they will just simply, you know, outspend Alberta by a big margin and Alberta's lead in this will be gone. And so there's an opportunity here to do some, some essentially as the market for oil and gas falls over time, and we can debate about when the you know peak demand and decline will start, but nevertheless, I think everybody agrees that that you know it's going to start declining at some point. What Alberta can do is build new markets for its oil again, domestic markets, so that not only do you maintain your extra extraction jobs, but then you add things like uh, on the like say on the bitumen side. Uh, turning it into carbon fiber. So first of all, you have to make carbon fiber precursor. There's a bunch of jobs and plants. Then manufacturers like Zoltec out of uh, St. Louis come up and they build a carbon fiber plant. And then they take that precursor and make, and so there's more plants, more capital investment, more jobs, and all in Alberta. 
instead of sending that oil down to the American Midwest or, you know, Houston, the U.S. Gulf Coast refineries, do something with it in Alberta. Create more, and it creates way more value per barrel than, than using it as feedstock for refineries. And James is, is busy in the, in the hydrogen space. There are Alberta companies with, with some very innovative uh, methane uh, pyrolysis technology where you take natural gas, you knock the, the carbon off, you're left with four uh, hydrogen uh, molecules. And, and now you've got inexpensive, low energy uh, uh, hydrogen. So there's all sorts of stuff that Alberta is leading the way on and it just needs to get on with the business. And it's gonna take some money. Government's gonna to have to come to the table uh, with, their, with their checkbooks and, and spend, and industry is going to have to spend. And we have to realize, uh, the International Energy Agency said like three weeks ago, we carried Executive Director Fatih Beryl's uh, speech in our, on our website. And he said, look, we're now in a renewable energy revolution, but that has triggered a renewable, uh, a clean energy industry revolution. Because, and, and James will appreciate this, if you're going to, the equipment that has to, to replace uh, fossil fuels, so like wind, you know, solar panels and, and wind turbines and batteries, you got to build those. And so, you know, there's a tremendous amount of capital uh, worldwide going into building battery plants, building EV plants, building solar panels, plants, all of that kind of stuff. So not only have we got a, a renew a clean energy revolution going on, we have a new, the next industrial revolution going on. That was the point that the IEA made. And Alberta is like so, so well positioned for this. But I interviewed uh, Bloomberg NEF's head of commodities and mining uh, last year. And I said to him, we we're talking about Alberta, you know, like critical minerals and battery metals processing and that kind of stuff. And I said, well, you know, Alberta's probably got a decade, right? You know, maybe like seven years. Surely it's got till 2030. And he said, no. He said, Alberta's got two to five years to act. Because what they don't understand is that the opportunities that Alberta sees, uh, Vietnam, Malaysia, Indonesia, uh, Brazil, they all want in on this too. And they're much more aggressive. They see this Forward. as the road to industrialization and a middle-class lifestyle that we've enjoyed for a hundred years. They see that as the, the pathway to it and they're going after hellbent for leather. Mm -hmm. And, and so we have two to five years. Well, we, we can hardly organize a coffee party in two to five years and we need to get on with it. We need, and we need the leadership. We need people to stand up and say, I'm sorry, this is not fast enough. Let's get moving because otherwise we're going to get left behind. And um, so anyway, I, now I've, I've gone on a little bit of a rant and I'll, I'll probably just shut up. No, but you know, and if I may jump in here, Mark, that's, that is probably one of the most eloquent ways I could hear it being put, especially how, because I'm very familiar with Al, Al, Alberta Innovates and they are amazing. Like they, they're doing a lot of good stuff here. And when it comes back to investment there, therein lies the answer to your question, right? Right there. Uh, because they do do great things. And the thing is, it's the, it comes to conversations like this. Like, I wish that I, I hope everybody in Alberta hears what you just said, because that's basically the answer is where we need, because we're not getting rid of 
you know, the fear is everybody, hey, we're losing our jobs. We're not, no, 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 we're shifting, right? Like the oil and gas is not going away. It's just how we use it, right? And, and that's what a lot of people don't understand. They would rather just plant their feet in the ground going, hey, I'm an oil and gas guy, or, you know, like you still can be that person. It's just, it's about transition and we need to do it and we need to do it quickly, right? Because we will be left behind just from watching sales globally of, uh, you know, ESG transitional equipment. Uh, like we're very far behind on that in North America as a whole. So. I, I have to say, Shanaz, it, it's really amusing on, on social media. I, I often get attacked as being an enemy of Alberta oil and gas. You know, I'm, I'm lumped in with Justin Trudeau. It, and the, the and it, what my response to that is, I'm not an enemy of Alberta oil and gas. I'm its biggest friend. I'm an enemy of the status quo, mm-hmm. of status quo thinking. That I that I am an enemy of. I I you know we have to. There needs to be some some change in thinking really quick. But if there's two there's two schools of thought, and the public policy forum, which is a big and in, 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 uh, industry funded, uh, and I mean like Canadian industry funded uh, think tank, said, okay, look, let's decarbonize oil and gas, and if by 2040 2050 markets decline faster than we think, then let the market do its thing. Right. You know, if if Suncor goes under and Synovus goes under and they can't compete and we're only left with one company, well, you know, one big. That's OK. That's the market speaking. What? Albertans own that resource under the Canadian Constitution. Albertans own that resource. And what they should be thinking of is, OK, markets are going to go down. Well, how do I find new markets for my product? The product that's going to that's going to generate uh, revenue that supports education and schools and healthcare and all of all of that kind of stuff. How do I strategically and consciously ride this energy transition so that my biggest resource, bitumen and and gas, uh, has has new markets as the old ones decline? And if you and, and I've written extensively about this, if you do it smart. Will be will be prosperous well into the twenty second century. Never mind, let the let things die and let the market have its way. Let's be smart about it and do it differently so that we can continue, Alberta can actually be more prosperous, you know, in the future than it is today. But that's not the direction we're going. Yeah, agreed. And it's and it's something that uh, well, it's exactly where we should be going. I've said for years, like Canada is just gross national product we have everything that the world wants absolutely everything from power so you and we need to shift that right and and use it to our advantage not just as albertans but as a as a country thank you so much we're going to switch now to hydrogen Um, generating power from uh, renewables is only part of the energy transition mass introduction of electric transportation infrastructure and energy storage coupled with greater usage of technologies to improve energy efficiency are also driving this movement. As the average cost of lithium ion batteries has fallen drastically on a mixture of manufacturing economies of scale and technology improvements, companies and consumers alike are increasingly turning to electrification for power transportation, making the transition to EVs one of the largest potential areas for electrification. The global EV adoption rate could reach 10%, 12.5%, depending on what you uh, um, read, by 2025. What are your thoughts on this and what are some initiatives you are working on in hydrogen? James. Um, well, my thoughts on that, well, 
I'll address it kind of in two parts here. My thoughts on the EV versus hydrogen. I think here, especially in, in this country, EV will have a place, right? It's not, uh, it's not very conducive to our weather, for one. Um, also being the, the transitional way that it's working, it's just like on the grid here, there's, it's, it's too demanding. And they're working tirelessly, obviously, to try and correct that. But you can't, I mean, not a lot of people know, like when you go electric batteries, they have, say, electric semis, right? They they go EV, but they can only haul, you know, like half the amount, three quarters of the amount what they normally do. So hence, you're moving less product and so on and so forth. So where I think hydrogen comes in, I'll, I'll, I think in Canada, you're going to have a really nice blend of hydrogen and EVs, like in, in your city centers and things like that, you'll probably have more EV vehicles, especially like I lived in Toronto for a couple of years. The weather's far more conducive for an EV market, say in Toronto, than it is, say, Fort McMurray, right? So it, I think you'll have a, kind of a split between the two. For as for the hydrogen, like uh, right now, the new technology is coming out uh, with there's full blown hydrogen trucks. They're 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 operating today. They're hydrogen over diesel with the goal of uh, replacing it just with hydrogen. The problem is right now there's no hydrogen fueling station they do it with like four or five bottles on the back when the hydrogen runs out switches the diesel till they can um you know get uh, more hydrogen for our products they're hydrogen on demand right so again now this uh fantastic product transitional product right it's the step to get us to full-blown hydrogen right we already currently have products that we're bringing out right now that we have uh hydrogen producers which is green uh hydrogen it uh, will produce 2,000 liters an hour for, for potential fueling stations. I think it's going to be a race, like it really will be. I'm involved in both sectors, by the way. I provide water for lithium extraction. I'm very big into both spaces. Uh, and I, from what I'm seeing, it's, it's going to be a race. I don't think that just from what happened on the Coca-Cola last year, there was four or five you know, electric vehicles uh, stranded that they had to haul out generators because the highway was closed. Right, so they're bringing out fuel for the diesel trucks and uh, bringing out generators to try and power these electric vehicles because when the power is dead, there's no heat, there's no. So there's challenges, and again, these are speed bumps on the way. That and I'm pretty sure it's been expected by everybody that there are going to be these type of challenges. So I think, especially in Canada, uh, where we enjoy winter the majority of the year, I don't think EV will be as big as say it will be through your you know more your, your warmer climates. They just work better i don't think ev can take over uh your long haul trucking just because uh and at this point they can't i'm not saying they never will be able to but at this they just don't generate enough power to pull heavy heavy loads which is and if you see a lot of companies like by reducing emissions you're seeing a lot more b trains on the road even running triples triple trailers right just to take trucks off the road you know so electric can't power that diesel can at this point so that's why with the transition with uh, say the bolt-on hydrogen uh, units that I do that reduces the carbon the NOx by like 90 percent things like that so transitional till we can catch up and I, I think hydrogen can replace that hydrogen will be able to haul the heavy loads and whatnot at this point uh, EV cannot so there's a few markets there that you have to uh, consider uh, and where you put them and where you invest your time and energy on the grid um, like, would you invest in a grid, say, in Toronto to <clears throat> power nothing but EV vehicles? Yeah, that would that would make sense for me. Uh, would you do it, you know, in Alberta, where the majority of, uh, you know, heavy equipment operates, 
you know, the climate is very, very cold in the winter um, to avoid freeze-ups. No, that would be more of a hydrogen market. So uh, I, I float between the two. Uh, and uh, I think that uh, when they are, uh, people got to just realize where they need to be used, right? Like, and where you put your money on it, right? Because there are, especially during these transition stages, there's, uh, you got to be very careful on that. Like a lot of people out here, they've gone, they bought an electric truck. I know several companies that I work with, they all bought electric semis. It took them a year to get them. And now they just go to shows because they won't do the job. So the, the, you know, like, so that's uh, basically, I, I think it's race. And I think hydrogen is going to win out on your Northern kind of colder climates. And I think your EV will be more of your Southern kind of, you know, commercial, like domestic use cars and whatnot, transportation. Margaret, any thoughts on that? I have a few. Okay. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, th there's a couple of uh, big debates going on here. And James touched on one. I want to touch on another one. And that is the, the uh, opportunity for uh, hydrogen exports. Because that's uh, been played up big time by the Alberta government, by Canadian government, and by other provincial governments. And I've interviewed Michael Liebrecht, who is the founder, actually, of Bloomberg New Energy Finance. And they sold it to Bloomberg. And and uh, and a very vocal global opponent of hydrogen, and his point is the physics of long term, uh, long distance sh uh, shipping. They threw a pipeline, put it on a ship, put it, uh, you know, take it over to Japan or someplace, and then un unload it and put it into their system. There, it, it just doesn't work. The, the, the economics don't work. The, the, the uh, efficiencies don't work. It's very, very, very difficult. Now. So let's just, I, and I kind of agree with them at this point in the game, unless there's some sort of a techno, technology breakthrough, that's probably, I think, a, a good argument. But what James mentioned, like hydrogen on demand, I think that's, that's where it's, it's going to, uh, act because there's, there's uh, small scale steam methane reforming where you use natural gas to make, make hydrogen. Electrolyzers are coming way down in price and you can get small scale uh, electrolyzer so that you just need uh, clean electricity and water and poof you've got you've got hydrogen this methane uh, pyrolysis that I mentioned uh, I think that's got a, a tremendous amount of potential for Alberta so making it where you use it in a fuel cell or or putting it into a, a modified uh, you know semi truck engine uh, that's got a lot that's got lots of potential and now the the, ex, the other question is where are the use cases? So I interviewed uh, Eddie Robar, who is the, he manages the uh, transit for, for the city of Edmonton. And he, they've got two buses uh, that, that they're testing right now, hydrogen buses. And he said, look, uh, a couple things. One is temperature, you know, the James brought up. Uh, at 20, 25, 30 below, uh, it's, it's really hard. You know, you're losing a lot of, uh, you're losing maybe half of the energy density out of your battery, half of your range. That doesn't work for us really well. And Edmonton's got 60 uh, electric buses, so they they know this issue. So that they're looking to hydrogen to get to, to help them with that issue. And then the second thing is their bus barn uh, it has, is maxed out in terms of what the the local infrastructure can handle. So if you wanted to bring in you know another another 60 electric buses, you you the, you simply don't have the capacity in the in the infrastructure, the distribution infrastructure to do that, and that's a huge expense. And the city really doesn't doesn't want to undertake it at this point. So they're testing out the buses now. About the same time, 
that I was interviewing Eddie, I was interviewing the Alberta Motor Trucking Association because they launched a test pilot project with two hydrogen fuel cell class eight semi-trucks. And so these will be going back and forth between uh, Calgary and Edmonton, and they will, over the course of two years, 80, I think the number is 80 carriers will have an opportunity to use those trucks and they want to test them out. So they want to, they want to know, you know, what are they like and uh, how do they operate and how, you know, what are the costs and, and all of that. I had a, I had a uh, ride in one of them that was uh, available uh, at the press conference and it's quiet, it's torquey, you know, I mean, the drivers love them. So if they can get, if they can solve the uh, supply and distribution problem, it's kind of a chicken and egg problem, right? You have to scale up demand and scale up supply and distribution at the same time. Uh, but they're working on that. There are a couple of projects that have been announced for Edmonton. The Alberta government just put out an RFP uh, to build a fueling infrastructure. So I think that's good use of, of uh, government money to get in early on that. Uh, and then I also interviewed Brody Chalmers, who is looks after hydrogen for ATCO, the big utility. And he said, look, man, you know, like Alberta is a cold place in the wintertime. And, you know, you, were, you can't get rid of natural gas right away because we need that for space heating. Maybe we can use hydrogen down the road. That's still not clear. But Basically, this comes down to dollars and cents in physics. Not all of this stuff is going to work. And so Alberta, I think, is very much wants this, sees itself as a leader, wants to be out in front of this, is doing some really good work, but is experimenting. And I think that's the real the, the real key is test it out. What yeah. where does it make sense? Where doesn't it make sense? Which technologies are going to work better? They're they're working closely with the many of the manufacturers in, in Vancouver, like Ballard and uh and hydro uh, hydro energy and, and like that mm -hmm. so this is a really exciting time and i don't i think it's still too early to, to say who, who you know who's going to be the winners and who's going to be the losers but I, alberta is taking the right approach at getting in there get getting you know mucking about with your hands dirty and figuring it out exactly and if i may add one thing to that part of uh you're right it's it's a physics thing because you know early on in these conversations uh, around hydrogen here in Alberta, they're like, well, why don't we use, you know, pipelines we're not using anymore. That's a way, because they're trying to build a hydrogen community right now in uh, Atco is a large part of it actually at Edmonton, right? To experiment to, you know, and it's the pipeline issue. But what I find exciting is people outside of the industry, small companies are getting involved. I, I was at the hydrogen conference here uh, in Edmonton just recently. And if you ever get a chance to go check it out, it's pretty amazing some of those concepts and some of the things that they're 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 trying to achieve. I, I was but, there, James. I can't believe you didn't come and say hi. I do. <laughs> next year, next year. Okay. <laughs> so it's a, they have. Uh, I met this gentleman, like, and he's been in oil and gas for years, much the same as me. That I made my living from it. I've you know you know built my home on it and that kind of stuff. And I'm into this space, but you know, working with it, trying to go and just like me. He came up and he showed me this piece of pipe and I go, okay, what are we talking about here? And he goes, well, we've come up, we've been testing it for a year where they can coat the inside of the pipe or a liner and the hydrogen molecule won't escape because you probably know, Markham, that it's like, it's a very small molecule, right? You can't just put it into a pipeline because it'll work its way out of there and it'll leak. So you need something to conceal that, that number one to, you know, go down, uh, go down a pipeline. 
And he goes, we've been going for a year under different pressures. And also hydrogen has to be shipped at very high pressure. And, and that's that's the challenge, like for exporting and whatnot, say over to China and, 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 and wherever they want to use it for, say, a global market. That's the challenge. You know, it has to be shipped at high, such high pressure. How do we get it there? But I think this is going to be like to agree with the market. It's it's a it's an experiment. And, and at the end of the day, who's going to win? We got to try things out. It's like making an omelet. Got to break some eggs here. Right. And figure it out. Indeed. So, uh, yeah. No, very much agree. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, what's gone well? What are governments, federal, provincial, maybe even munis doing well? And what are some of the things that uh, can be improved? James, you want to take a um, I don't have a lot to speak on. I, I will say this, though. Things that could be improved from, say, my standpoint from trying to get this out of here is... Uh, um, Alberta Innovates does a wonderful job in supporting, you know, any initiative to, uh, you know, hydrogen, electrical, that kind of stuff. Uh, I would like to see a little bit more from the federal government, just be, and and it may be there. And I'm no expert on this, and Markham probably could talk to this better than I can. But from just from what I'm seeing with my, uh, you know, people, customers, just your regular Albertan, it's like, okay, we're being we're being taxed, and you know, carbon tax, whatever. Like, okay, that's fine. But what we're not seeing, uh, at least quickly, I know that there are a few programs in place, right, to kind of help offset the cost of, say, transitioning. I do know that that is coming out. I just, I would like to see it happen quicker, right? Because, you know, we're in a stalemate here. Because, for example, hydrogen on demand, and, and there's another company, Cypher Neutron, which is Dynasert and Cypher Neutron. They're doing amazing things with, you know, being able to produce hydrogen as, say, fueling stations and stuff like that. And so for our product, if you go on the federal government's uh, website, so, you know, the mom and pops that buy from me that they're at, and and believe it or not, in Alberta here, they're very concerned with fuel consumption and NOx gas. And, and so um, it's actually the smaller players that, that are my biggest customers so far, right? Like they're just, you know, I got five trucks, I'm, I care about this, they're, they're putting them on. But their problem is they can get funding from the federal government for your wind fins on trailers we've all seen them going down the highway which changes your fuel consumption by maybe a percent uh you know apu units which are just provide air conditioning and heating when the truck's not running that kind of thing but for hydrogen on demand right there's no they're working on it but there's no they're kind of taking their time with that right and this is something that reduces fuel consumption five to 19 percent you know 60 percent overall emission reduction with NOx being the big at 88.7% and they want 80% out. So we're doing all these initiatives. I would like to see from the federal government is like, Hey, we're doing it. So, you know, if they can apply for money back, like your mom and pops, especially, I'm not talking your big guys, but your mom and pops that are doing this, you know, give them, you know, a little relief on that because they're paying the tax on the carbon. They're making the investment into lowering emissions. They need a little relief. Alberta Innovates does it quite well. I would just like to see a little bit more out of federal government. That's yeah. Markham, thanks, James. Well, I've done a fair amount of work on, on uh, Canadian industrial policy, which is very different than the old style, you know, 70s and 80s industrial policy. The, the focus now is on collaboration to create industrial clusters like the Edmonton Regional Hydrogen Hub. That's a good example of one. And, and there's money available for that. The, the, the problem... <laughs> In Canada, we're a very decentralized federation. Uh, you know, the, the constitution gives the provinces a lot of authority over the kind of industries we're talking about. And the federal government basically can put in place, you know, big overarching uh, 
policy objectives and and regulations. But really, it, it, the the federal and it can bring money, uh, which it it is finally in this last budget. It really rolled out some some big dollars, uh, you know, like the forty five billion dollar Canada Growth Fund. And there's that's you know there's more than that. The problem here is that you have to have the federal government and the provincial government working together. The Alberta government and the federal government have not done that well over the last four years. It, you know, it's a continual fighting and and uh, and and over jurisdiction and and it, you know approach and and until that gets resolved. Because you know what, ideally, what would happen is the federal government has a program. Uh, it works with the, the provincial government, which puts in a smaller amount of money. But then the provincial government, through its agencies or however it wants to do it, it then runs the program. That's that's the best way to do it because then you've got you know a, a, a made in Alberta approach to this, uh, or you've got a made in BC approach, or a made in Quebec, or a made in Ontario. Uh, and the federal government isn't dictating how Alberta should be doing its, you know, it, managing its energy transition. So when I said early on, uh, very early in the, the interview, that leadership is, is our biggest uh, problem, that's one of the things I was referring to. Like our politicians have got to get out of this, you know, stop fighting and come to the table, work together and get on with this because the consequences are just simply uh, too serious. Now, having said that, um, the Americans are showing us how it's done. Uh, I've had a chance to read a couple of the speeches, just as an example, uh, that, that uh, Gina Riamundo, who is the Secretary of Commerce in, in the U.S., has laid it out like explicitly. They do these really detailed policy speeches that they give. We don't have an equivalent in Canada. And Riamundo just said, look, China's our big competitor. We're going after it, hammers and tongs. We're going to be number one in these industries. We're going to build supply chains. We're going to modernize our grid. We're going to, you know, uh, build plants and EV plants and battery plants. And we're going to, and and the fact that they're bringing money to the table and all the, the federal uh, planning and, and legislative stuff that the Americans can do that the Canadian government can't do, holy moly, what's happening south of the border is amazing compared to you know, I, stodgy old Canada. Let's take the electricity system. The Americans are literally in real time revolutionizing how they generate and distribute electricity, how they plan for all of that. I mean, it's messy, yes, because, you know, that's the way America does everything. It doesn't do it in a planned, coordinated fashion. It does it in a messy fashion. But they're getting there. Whereas you look at Canada where you've got, you know, 10 provinces, 10 little electricity fiefdoms, and we're not getting anywhere. You know, we're, we're going to need twice as much, three times as much electricity by 2050, and we're not even close to thinking about, thinking about that, let alone having the conversation. So this is, to get it, get it back to federal programs, uh, the, the, the policy is there, the money is there, uh, but we need, we need the governments, the provincial governments to be working with the, the federal government. And, uh, and the clock is ticking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there it's uh, just for when you go on your different websites, like I'll send links to people and whatever that, have, you know, uh, that are customers and whatnot. Um, federal government, you're, you're right, they, they work with the provincial and, and I, I couldn't agree more on, on the need to talk, like, you know, and, and 
that's exactly why they're hired is to talk, which blows me away, right? Like their whole job is to talk to each other and they don't, right? So it's uh, hopefully that could change sooner rather than later because you're right, it is ticking and uh, it's uh, something that we need to get on because like you said, the states, their programs, that they, their initiatives that they rolled out are just amazing. I've perused through them and it's, uh, they're going to be a contender here very shortly, so. Indeed they are. Thank you. Um, uh, so we've talked about uh, stuff that's not going uh, uh, well, and you both have talked about some things that are, but what's really exciting you these days? And tell us about what specific, specifically is happening in Alberta that's exciting you around hydrogen and perhaps other um, uh, green initiatives. James? Uh, what's really exciting for me is that uh, everybody is open to the conversation of transitioning at this point, right? Now, maybe not, uh, I'm gonna leave government right out of this. I'm just talking about companies in general, right? That, uh, um, you know, especially, you know, my company's been around for, we're going into our third year. First year was very, very slow as me knocking on the door and everybody's like, yeah, yeah. Just like you said, Markham, yeah, we'll worry about that. You know, like, and then it just switched. Like they're, they're all, you know, with, you know, rising costs at the pump or everybody, everybody has an agenda when they want to transition. It's kind of, it's, it's never the same one. Like when you, each individual business owner has it, but one thing that they're all excited about is hydrogen on demand. They do like that concept because it's, it's, it's working with the fleet that they already have. Right. So it allows them to save money and transition, you know, get their, get their emissions down, get their cost savings. The units pay for themselves An ROI on a unit can be anywhere from three months to 18 and it's good for like 10 plus years. So um, that's really exciting for me as, as uh, also uh, another thing that's exciting is uh, EV, like the, the test wells that are being drilled for lithium extraction, right? You, you know, uh, again, private companies that are taking on the initiative to try and get this to open market to kind of speed up, right? Um, uh, the the technology like well just like as markham said earlier like the what's happening with companies in alberta there's a lot of private companies that are really got their foot on the gas and they they could use a little help getting there quicker but that's what's exciting it's like now the doors are opening every time i call people pick up yeah let's talk about this and, and the conversation started and uh i think for me and for most albertans that's the exciting time because it's not when you strip away all the layers of it and you really look at it for what it is, it's just, a, it's a transition. It's not a, it's not an abolition of, of anything. It's just a transition. And once people start talking, which we have, it's, uh, it's been like a long road, but we're getting there. And I, I, I would, uh, I would like the government actually to catch up to the conversations that the population is having, right? You know, the non-elected officials are having, right? So, yeah. Market? Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I mean, um, uh, I've noticed, in fact, I think I wrote a column about it after I got back from the hydrogen conference that you and I didn't meet up at, yeah. uh, where, I, where I said, you know what, uh, I'm, I'm finally noticing this big change in people's thinking. Like literally, I've been, so I've been reporting on, on the energy transition in one form or another for, for 10 years. And I remember this one particular time I was having a chat with this, it was 2018. And the energy transition was really just starting to accelerate. You could see the, the exponential growth beginning in solar and wind and batteries and so on. It was, you know, it was a, it, we hadn't quite got to the point we are today where it's just plainly obvious, can't be denied. And this guy said to me, he said, 
You can spell energy transition with a capital E and a capital T. That doesn't mean it's a real thing. Okay, you know, and that was a really common attitude five years ago. And so I've watched things, you know, this painful transition, if you will, in the narrative and in the conversation in Alberta around that. And it's far advanced from where it was. It's still got a long ways to go. But I want to talk about some of the positive things, because that's what you asked about, Shanaz. And, and Alberta has got really good stuff going for it. So one of them is its electricity system. It is the only fully deregulated wholesale market for generation in the province and that, or in, the can, in Canada. And that's why it leads it, uh, in the adoption of wind and solar. Last year, uh, Alberta added one gigawatt of new renewables generating capacity, and that's like miles ahead of everybody else. This year it was forecast to do two gigawatts, and I think it's going to actually exceed that again, way ahead of everybody else. And you know, the market is set up so that if you're an approved developer, you can basically, you know, build your your wind farm or your solar farm, and and then you have the right to connect to the to the grid. And that's a that's a big difference. And so that's why a lot of this investment is coming to build this capacity, because co companies like Amazon and Microsoft, they want to buy that that clean electricity and and use that as credit against decarbonizing their operations. OK, so that's one. It's, it's already got an electricity system that with some tweaks and fixes uh, is a big uh, competitive advantage. Number two is bitumen. I had the uh, I had a, a long interview with Dr. Paula Bombit, who is the head of, I forget what his title is, at Alberta Innovates, but he's a chemist. And he explained, he wrote it out on the board. He said, look, here's what a typical hydrocarbon uh, molecule looks like. And it's just, it's, uh, and then he said, here's what a bitumen molecule looks like. It's like a sheet. It's very different. It's a very unique chemical composition. He said that this allows us to manipulate it into things as, to make it a building block for materials that very few, uh, very few uh, feedstocks have those kind of chemical compositions. Burning it is the absolute worst thing to do with this thing. This is a tremendously valuable resource that we can use uh, to build other industries that will create far more value and far more jobs. Than shipping it off to to Texas to get turned you know turned into into aviation fuel or, or diesel or whatever they decide to do with it, so that's bitumen is not recognized as the valuable resource that it really is. So that's that's another the second advantage that it's got. The third is anybody who spends time in oil and gas. I spent five times in uh, five years in the industry, uh, so I'm not no expert, but I got. Part of my job was to find Alberta manufacturers, innovators, and, and open up American markets for them. And the amount of innovation uh, that goes on in Alberta is vastly underestimated, vastly underestimated. And a lot of this, this technology has applications outside of, of oil and gas, whether it technically is clean tech or it's, it's something else. And over the last five years, because of some of the, the government uh, policies that have encouraged uh, clean tech or, or these, uh, you know, technology companies to set up shop or to scale up, you know, there now there are um, uh, incubators uh, to help these kind of companies go from, uh, you know, a pilot stage or, or demonstration stage up to commercial stage and then and then scale up to global, uh, to become a global player in these in the supply chain, you know, that's new. 
and it's we're, we're you know still uh, a proof of concept stage, and that that's fine. But it's got the right idea, and there's money going into innovation, and there's you know there's more engineers in Calgary per capita than any place else in Canada, and oh, yeah. all you know right, yeah. and I mean, and and these are the these are the men and women who are dying, you know, they're coming up. Well, I'll give you an example. Amanda Hall, uh, who is the CEO of Summit Nanotech. So she is one of these companies that James was referring to that can take uh, lithium out of briny water. And she was a geophysicist up with CNRL up until two, three years ago. And we and uh, I've interviewed her a couple of times. She founded the company, got an A-series funding uh, financing of like $40, 50000000 million with uh, uh investors outside of Canada, and now is working in Chile with Chilean lithium, with the, you know, the biggest lithium extraction industry, to, to use her technology instead of the traditional uh, lithium extraction technologies. I mean, it, that's a world-class story. And oh, yeah. it's all using Alberta talent. No, that, that is awesome. Uh, I'll just plug a young man uh, uh, we work with, uh, uh, Wahed Mikhail. He just graduated with a BSc in uh, civil um, uh, engineering, uh, and I think electrical as well, uh, from uh, um, University of uh, Calgary. And um, he got two gold medals for the highest GPA. So you guys got some good engineers uh, down there. And you know what? The, I, like, again, I talk to companies all over the world. And when you ask them what, what, what they're looking for when they cite a plant, for instance, and they say, well, a couple of things. One is you got to have clean electricity. Like clean electricity these days is table stakes if you're going to build industry. Number two, capital, like human capital. You got to have smart people. And, and you got to turn out these engineers and technologists and, and other folks that, that uh, Alberta has uh, been so good at over the years because they went to work in the oil and gas industry. So Alberta has got all kinds of, uh, of competitive advantage, advantages, but it's also got some competitive disadvantages. And it would really be a good thing if the provincial government spearheaded a, pro a strategy process to bring the stakeholders together, come up with a strategy that everybody bought into, take advantage of the comparative, uh, competitive advantages, and, and mitigate the competitive disadvantages. So everybody was rowing in the same direction. That would be a huge oh, advantage, and it ain't happening, and it's not likely to happen from what I can see. I was just going to say, that sounds like a tall order. I would love that. But it's a, it's a, it seems like an uphill battle on that one. Yeah, yeah, but, it, it is. And, and you're right. There is a, an incredibly vast resource of very uh, aggressive, intelligent people here that are really, and I'm seeing it more and more year over year, especially downtown Calgary, right? Like, you know, as people graduate, the new engineers come up and, the, and there's huge conversations going on. But again, you know, it would be nice to, for the government to jump in on these conversations and get in the boat, so to speak, and, and let's do something about it, right? Remember, James, now this, Shanaz may not remember this, but, but you and I are of an age where we, we do remember Peter Lougheed and what he did in the, in the oil and gas industry, you know, to set up Aostra and get the oil, oil sands going and the Alberta Energy Company and getting petrochemicals going in the, in the province. We need that kind of leadership. Mm -hmm. And if we, yeah. you know, to, to get on with it, and, and not and not pick be picking fights and complaining all the time, but get on with it and show some leadership. And well, anyway. yeah, like it's the leadership thing is the great. And the one thing that has been 
And, and for me, uh, leadership is a huge thing, especially for the industry and we're, we're going to change. Right. And it's, it, it, it's all about, you know, these are all elected officials that have been hired to do a job. And it's time for them to stop pointing fingers at one another going, you did this, you did that, you did that, you know, and start talking and work together. There was a time in this country when that actually did happen, right? It, was, <laughs> it wasn't odd for, Been a while. for an opposition party to go, hey, no, I agree with you. Let's do that because it's for the betterment of the country, right? You know, and I think we need to get back to that kind of uh, politics, right? Because there was a time where people did work together, right? You know, yeah. I remember years ago, it didn't really matter who you voted for because they would actually get together and things would get done. Right. But now it's, a, there's not a lot of, uh, not a lot of conversation about how do we make things better more than, you know, I want your job. Right. <laughs> so I, I would like to see that for sure. Right. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you so much. Uh, let's talk a little bit about some legal issues. Um, what changes arising from the energy transition are likely to give rise to uh, disputes, in your opinion. Lots to dive with that one, Mark. <laughs> I, I was hoping I could punt it over to you. <laughs> okay. Um, well. To be honest, to be honest, Shanaz, uh, that isn't a an area where I've reported, mm -hmm. uh, and if I haven't reported on it, I don't have an informed opinion. So I'm I'm going to pass on that one if you don't oh. mind. It's all good. I can I could touch on it. Uh, the sure. disputes and actually you, you mentioned a little bit earlier, Mark, amidst jobs, right? Like a lot of people are, you know, worried about, you know, uh, as the rise and transitioning comes up, you know, those good high paying jobs are going to be gone. But as to what you said before, Mark, they're, they're not going to be gone. They're still going to be high paying. They're just going to trend. They're just going to be different. Um, and I think those are like, that's just what I hear, right? Like you, it doesn't matter if you're in a coffee shop or, you know, you're at a pub having a pint or whatever, you hear the conversations around you. And it, it largely, that's everybody's like, oh, they want to take their jobs or they want this and that. It's, it's not about that. That job is still there, right? Like the, there might not be as many in that particular sector, but then that door closes. Now you're working over on this plant, say with bitumen, we're using it to build wonderful products or whatever the case may be. Um, I think as it rises, those are the just those are always going to be the disputes though. People are always going to plant their feet in, in on the ground and, and, and not be willing to move. So you'll have a little bit of that, but uh, from what I could see moving forward, it'll be just that. Right. So. Oh, okay. Well, I, that I actually can talk to. Uh, yeah. So back in the day, um, I mean, it's, there's a model in rural Alberta for making a good living for yourself. You, you, maybe you quit high school, maybe you graduate, and you get on with a service company and you work on a rig or you work someplace, you will kind of work your way up through the industry and you're getting, you know, $125,000, $150,000 a year or whatever, but you're living the good life. Uh, and what's happened is the industry was slow to adopt digital technology, like manufacturing did it, you know, 20 years before oil and gas did it. But all over the world now, digital technology like sensors and artificial intelligence, analytics, uh, the cloud, all of that kind of stuff over the last oh, five years or so has been transforming how operations happen out in the field and in, in the head office. And so what's happened is the, the less technically skilled uh, folks, the guys who do windshield time, you know, like pumpers, uh, they've lost their jobs. There's the, the, the industry has in Alberta has lost 45,000 jobs, most of them in the service industry, from between 2014 and 2013, and they're not coming back. And what's happened is 
that people who have technical skills, doesn't, you don't have to be an engineer, but you're a technologist of some kind, or you're a programmer, or you're a whatever, but you've got technical skills, those people are in demand. And those people are going to, are always going to be. So if I, in a couple of weeks, I have to be in Calgary, I'm going to be talking to high school students about, you know, jobs and where they should go. And, and I will tell them that when I talk to employers or people like, uh, you know, uh, researchers, and, and I often ask, you know, if, if you had a high school or university graduate come up to you and say, where, where should I go for a job? It's that technical part of it. If you're, if you can work in a lab, if you can work with software, if you can do those kinds of things, you'll have a very good job in Alberta. No question. If you don't have those, you just, you know, got high school and you're coming out looking for a job, those kind of jobs are, are going to be increasingly hard to get. And I, my guess is they won't pay as well as they once did. Well, I, I agree with that. It, it's, um, you know, there was a time, like, it, speak with what you said, there was a time in this province. And, and this, you know, it, it, it was so booming. It was so busy. You know, you, you got a heartbeat and a pulse. You got a good, good job, like a good job, right? Now, uh, to, you know, when you're talking, people have asked me the same thing, like, what do you, where do you think the jobs are? And I think they're, uh, there, there are in trades, but the trades are becoming more and more technical. Just like you said, Mark, they're more and more technical. Like you know, the, um, I sat at a at a conference, and it's just like you know, if you're a journeyman, you know, uh, say uh, carpenter, right? It's changed so vastly. Ton of technology incorporated with building homes, right? Uh, he said he goes probably within the next ten to fifteen years. A, a traditionally stick built home, like you know, two by four framing. You'll have to be a multimillionaire to do it because there's just not people taking those jobs, right? Uh, and he says, even he goes, now he's had to take courses, right? Because everything is very digital, like everything. Like you, you can't just be a carpenter and not know how to run a computer now. Do you know what I mean? Like you can't just grab your hammer yeah. and go to work. Yeah. So uh, I agree with that because, uh, but these are also uh, what I, and I, for lack of a better word, like before when I came out here and I worked in the oil and gas, it was a great job, it was very rewarding. But to make, to have a really good job and make all that money. There was no discipline that I re was required of me to have that, right? I heartbeat and a pulse. I didn't need to have a university course. I, you know, didn't even need to really have high school, right? You just had to show up and work. And those jobs are disappearing, right? And you're very right about that. They, they are. They, and it's and that's when the disputes come up, that's normally where the disputes generate, right? Not so much because they don't want to. It's just like, well, now we're kind of being left behind because those jobs aren't there. Right. So it, and, and there's programs out there. The governments have wonderful programs of retraining and whatever like you, you can get. You can go get those jobs. It's never too late. Right. But that's that there has to be some focus around that, too, while we're transitioning. Right. You know, because like uh, there's jobs for people, but they you know, you're going to have to take the extra step. You can't just go out of high school and, you know, go and make one hundred and fifty thousand. There's a couple steps before that. now, Right. Yeah, well, we've been doing, uh, we've uh, written uh, research reports and we'll have a whole other show on labor shortages and all the other stuff. It's, uh, it's uh, uh, crazy. Tell me, uh, both of you, so James, you first, um, what are some good books you'd recommend and how can people reach you if they wanted to connect with you to learn more about SGD or in general? Oh, uh, you can reach me through my website, um, www.simplygreendistributors.ca. Um, and did you ask me books? Did you say what are good books that I yeah, would any, any good book, any <laughs> uh, uh, um, anything that uh, uh, comes to mind 
you know what? Just how I live my there's 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 one book that comes to mind, and it's actually not that big of a book, and it's uh, it's called The Minute Manager. I would recommend that one. Uh, it's about value added service, not just in uh, business, but as a person as well, right? You know, you know, you just take the extra step, right? And that, and that's kind of the whole concept of the book, how it benefits you in business, how it benefits you personally, right? You know, you don't have to go too much, too much further. So uh, I don't remember the author, but uh, The Minute Manager is a very, very good book. Thank you so much, James. Mark, I'm you. How can people uh, reach you and what good books uh, would you recommend? Oh, Shanaz, I'm going to be very shameless here. I actually wrote a book uh, <laughs> published in 2019. Of called... course, it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's and it's germane to our conversation. It was called uh, the New Alberta Advantage: Policy, Technology, and the Future of the Oil Sands. And in it, I argued that, and I was writing in 2018. Uh, you know, when the oil sands CEOs were very supportive of climate policy and carbon taxes. And so, and, and, and I argued that the oil sands CEOs were looking down the road when in their words, they would have to be cost and carbon competitive. Now, you know, bitumen is a, is a highly, highly emissions intense crude. And so uh, they needed to get that down either net zero, or they need to be very low in order because the market will very soon be uh, uh, pricing in uh, emissions intensity, and they needed to get their costs down. So they're a competitive barrel. And I and I argued that that Alberta oil sands actually, if it did, it was able to do all of those things supported by government policy, then it would wind up being competitive. Uh, and by the way, uh, on our website, energi.media, uh, we're giving that book away in both EPUB and PDF format. So uh, anybody can, uh, can can download it. And in terms of where they can find it, Markham at energy.media is my my email. Uh, they won't have any trouble finding me on Facebook and Twitter. I'm, you know, got a fairly, uh, uh, I want to say notorious uh, on there. So it's not hard. Uh, you can Google and find me. But I'm, I spend a lot of time, Shanaz, talking about energy narrative, how we think about energy, because how we think about energy can either empower us as a province and as a country to get out in front of some of the things that we've solved some of the issues that, that we've talked about today, and to help us get out in front of these trends so that we maintain our prosperity and we become competitive and we're, you know, build this wonderful uh, future for our, our kids and grandkids. We can do that. But narrative can also be inhibiting. It can hold you back. It, 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 narrative can be a way to shield the status quo from change. And, you know, we're arguing about should be, you know, Alberta gas be used for BC LNG to go to, to Europe, which is just like a non, you know, why are we arguing about 20th century energy? Yeah, we got to, we have way more important things to talk about. So, Anybody who wants to uh, visit me on social media or, or look at our website, I, I would, you know, talk, look for my narrative stuff, because I think uh, that's something that not many other uh, jour energy journalists in Canada, not that there are many of us left, but not many of us are, are, are them are talking about it. And I spend a lot of time on that. Thank you so much. This has truly been uh, enjoyable. I guess we'll uh, have you guys uh, back when James writes a book. 
Jamie, you're gonna uh, write one. Well, now one I'm gonna have to get on it, right? You know, <laughs> yeah, but it doesn't have it. to be a big book, Jim. It doesn't have to be a big book. No, mine would be a very quick read. That, that that's for sure at this point. But I will be getting Markin's book. That sounds very interesting. So I will be downloading that. Yeah, great. It, it sure yeah. does. Thank you so much. Thanks Thank for having you. us, Shanice. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Wall Street Bulls and Bears Main Street Hopes and Fears podcast. We hope you tune in again next week.